Podglomerate original. Well, we are three episodes in, which means we're halfway done, and we're about to talk about the comedy boom of the 80s. Do you know about this? Yeah, that's, that's when comedy got huge. There was tons of clubs and tons of comedians, lots of money going around. TV shows. Yes. Yeah, cable. Before we get to this, this is the perfect time to talk about what a lot of people think of as the best comedian ever to step foot on stage. Wayne Fetterman. No, it is Richard Pryor, but thank you for saying that. Why is Richard Pryor so revered by comedians? Pryor was incredibly talented in a number of areas. He could do act outs. He could do voices. He could do, he was the first guy that I know to kind of make fun of white people's voices. But I think what set him apart was he took what Lenny Bruce was doing, which was freedom of language, and then was brutally honest about his life. What we call confessional People connected more. I know there were definitely edgy, you know, truth-telling comedians before him, but I think he brought... Uh, That's the voice of Tignataro. I, I mean, growing up, my brother and I really connected over our love for Richard Pryor. As much of a fan as I, I consider myself, I hadn't really researched him, mm -hmm. his backstory, and it, it made me feel like, gosh, when you know that people have those kind of backgrounds, maybe if you dig a little further, there might be a legendary comedian waiting <laughs> in the wings. Remember we talked about, like, how unlikely it was that Freddie Prinze was 19 when he was on The Tonight Show? Yeah, you, you mentioned how sometimes it takes a while for a comedian to sort of Find point. their voice or point of view. 100%. So Pryor's the perfect example of this. Here's a clip of Richard Pryor making his TV debut in 1964 at the age of 23. Hi, everybody, and a very warm welcome to you all. We're delighted to have you join us on Broadway tonight. The first time on television, Richard Pryor. Uh, I'm going to tell you a few things about myself, because a lot of you probably don't know me. I'm not a New Yorker. My home's in Peoria, Illinois. And... Uh, I, I had a wild neighborhood, I gotta tell you, because uh, my mother's Puerto Rican and my father's Negro, and we lived in a real big Jewish tenement building. <laughs> in an Italian neighborhood. Every time I go outside, the kids say, Get him, he's all of them! <laughs> Richard Pryor did something at the end of 1978 and was released in 79 that had never been done before, which is a motion picture. Listen to me, a motion picture. Like in movie theaters. Of a comedian's act. So not like the HBO specials or, or what no. would become Comedy Central specials. I mean, in a way it was like that, except instead of on cable, you went to the movie theater and watched a comedian. And it was hugely influential. In fact, the guy from the Village Voice, Andrew Sarris, the great critic, called it one of the greatest movie-going experiences of his life. Just watching one comedian on, that's the whole movie. Anyone here ever had a heart attack? Them motherfuckers hike. I'm not bullshit, man. I was walking in the front yard. I was just walking along and something said, no Marie. I said, huh? So you heard me, motherfucker. I said, don't breathe. Okay, I won't breathe, I won't breathe, I won't breathe. Then shut the fuck up then. Okay. Don't kill me, don't kill me, don't kill me. Get on one knee and prove it. I'm on one knee. 
Think about dying now, ain't you? Yeah, I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking about that. You didn't think about it when you was eating all that pork. So you know black people got high blood pressure anyway, don't you? Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Then you gotta watch your diet. I will, I will. Don't kill me, don't kill me, don't kill me, don't kill me. You be thinking about shit like that when you think you're gonna die. <laughs> don't kill me, don't kill me, don't kill me, don't kill me, don't kill me. You put an emergency call into God too, right? Say, Can I speak to God right away, please? But always some angel talking about, I'll have to put you on hold. And then your heart get mad if it find out you was going behind its back to talk to God. Your heart say, was you trying to talk to God behind my back? No, but you's a lying motherfucker, you were. I woke up in an ambulance, right? And it wasn't nothing but white people staring at me. I said, ain't this a bitch? I done died and wound up in the wrong motherfucking house. For this Richard Pryor film, Chris Rock told Entertainment Weekly, every comedian will tell you that it is by far the greatest piece of stand-up ever done. I can't, I can't even add to that. I, I believe that is true. Welcome to the History of Stand-Up, the show where comedian Wayne Fetterman teaches us all more about the history of stand-up. And I'm your fellow student, Andrew Steven. In 1979, Richard Pryor released Live In Concert to huge success. It was later rebroadcast on HBO, and this was on the heels of Saturday Night Live, Steve Martin, uh, Freddie Prince on The Tonight Show. It seemed like comedy couldn't get any bigger than it was. Yeah, and that's the crazy part, because... What's going to happen over the next decade is mind-blowing, and it starts right out of the gate in 1980 with the discovery of this young comedian who, unlike Pryor, doesn't take 15 years to get ready. He's camera-ready out of the gate. I have been the class clown since I was a little kid. I started out as a class clown, and from class clown, I went to the school clown. From the school clown, I went to the neighborhood clown, and like now, everybody knows me. Here's a clip of Eddie Murphy on The Big Laugh Off, right before he was cast on SNL. I want to get, I say, famous by the time I'm 21. I'm 19 now. I give myself two years. Eddie Murphy's prediction of becoming famous came true in a huge way. Not only was he the breakout star of the new cast of SNL, but he also became a movie star. He did 48 Hours. He did Trading Places. And then, obviously, Beverly Hills Cop. And then in 1983, he does his version of a Richard Pryor concert film. He calls it Delirious, and it's on HBO. And it's another huge success for Murphy, solidifying him as the biggest stand-up in the country. Well, when I did Delirious, the only uh, uh, the only reference I had for uh, that type of show was Richard's uh, in concert. This is an interview Eddie Murphy did with Byron Allen. Back then, HBO was new. You know, it was no HBO specials and all that stuff was new. Remember when the ice cream man used to come to town when you was little? And no matter what you was doing, you would stop and lose your fucking mind? There's something about the ice cream truck that make kids lose it. And they can hear that shit from 10 blocks away. They don't hear their mother calling them, but they hear that motherfucking ice cream truck. And no matter what was going on, the ice cream man came to stop. You be getting some marbles and shit, and you hear, 
One kid on the side didn't get no ice cream, and kids don't care. They go, You don't have no ice cream. You didn't get none. You didn't get none. You didn't get none. You didn't get none. Cause you are on the welfare. And you can't afford it. You can't afford it. You can't afford it. That's my, uh, one of my favorite little routines of mine. Because that's one that everybody can relate to. It's like no matter where you come from, if you grew up in America, you know, you heard the ice cream man and you know what that routine is. Eddie Murphy was just 22 when he recorded Delirious for HBO in 1983. And an audio version of the concert entitled Eddie Murphy Comedian brought Eddie Murphy a Grammy Award for Best Comedy Recording. Now, no one knows the exact start of the comedy boom. Some people say it's 1978. Some people say... 81, uh, I'm going to just, because there is no answer, talk about one comedian named Jerry Seinfeld. What I find interesting about Eddie Murphy and Jerry Seinfeld, besides the fact they're both from Long Island, is they had almost opposite experiences with being on network television outside of stand-up in 1980. Eddie became a great sketch player and a breakout star of SNL, which we just mentioned. And Jerry Seinfeld got cast in a sitcom called Benson. It did not go the way everyone hoped. And he plays this kind of joke writer. Yeah, he played a, a messenger who pitches a joke to the governor. But the show Benson centers around a butler who eventually becomes lieutenant governor. Seinfeld is on three episodes. They claim he's not only going to be, have a recurring part, but he's going to become a regular on this show. For the fourth part, he goes in, finds out not only is he not going to be recurring, he's fired because he couldn't act, supposedly. That was the, the story. Listening to early Jerry Seinfeld, he already had an uncommon ability to create these remarkably precise observational stand-up routines. But his clean-cut style was still in development. Here's early Jerry Seinfeld talking about Superman. Remember, the TV show was what I originally got into, though. That was a great show. I watched that. I never missed it. I didn't produce it, but thank you. It was, uh, I mean, but if you watch it now, you know, it's still on syndication. Check it out now. You'll find it wasn't that good. There's a lot of shit in that show. You know what I mean? Like the Daily Planet, the newspaper. Supposedly, the largest circulation newspaper in the entire city. It got three reporters on the whole paper. Each week, two of them are stuck in a fucking cave somewhere. Listening to that, it's almost shocking to hear Seinfeld say shit and the F word. Yeah, he's known so much for being clean and not cursing in his act. I know, I know. But he, by 80, by 1980, that's all gone. He has decided, like, if the punchline can't stand on its own, it's not a joke good enough to be told by Jerry Seinfeld. 
Inventing kids' candy has got to be... That's got to be fun. I mean, there's just complete nutritional leeway. I mean, you can... We had candy jawbreakers. Do you remember this? Jawbreakers. This is the name of the product. Jawbreakers. Cement balls. That's what they were. Little cement balls. If you tried to bite it, you could break your jaw. We thought, this was great. 25 cents for a chance at serious injury? This is value in the kid mind. I don't know why you take chances in life. You just... And I went skydiving. I don't know, what was I, 17 or something? I wasn't getting into the sport. I did it just to do it. It's a great thing to do to your parents. They love this. They've just spent 17 years trying to protect you from every conceivable physical harm. I come downstairs, Mom, Dad, it's a pretty nice day. What do you say we risk the whole ball of wax right now? His ascent absolutely parallels the comedy boom. How would you describe the comedy boom? It, there was many aspects to it besides the clubs and the TV, but basically, and remember when we were talking about the the improv in 1964, when that mm -hmm. first comedian came Dave in? Dave Astor. Exactly. He comes in, and then what happens after Dave's there for a couple it's shows? Co comedians keep coming in. Ron Carey comes in, Pryor, all of these guys. It becomes guys. a huge place for comedians to perform. But not only that, the comedians took over the place. Yes. It's no longer a, a music club. So this is what happens, but instead of to one place, it's done to an entire country. It's like a biblical plague, and suddenly comedy is spreading all over the United States. I like that comedy, this thing that adds levity and makes people laugh, you're referring to as a plague. Well, I was going to say cancer, but I downgraded it for the podcast. Fair enough, fair enough. My goal early on had become to do television. This is the voice of Rich Scheidner. Scheidner not only was a comedian all through that time, wrote a great book about that experience called... Kicking Through the Ashes, My Life is a Stand-Up in the 80s Comedy Boom. Jerry Seinfeld had impressed upon me to have a lot of material because he always wanted to be like three, four sets ahead. Like he had, he'd have three or four great Carson shots ready, always in the bank. So to me, comedy clubs, you could work on material a lot. That was a big attraction to me, that, that you could go on stage and, and you could work on a lot of material. Comedy is spreading. By 82, almost every major city in the country has a comedy club, if not two, and it keeps growing. There's like suddenly two in Anchorage. And by the end of the boom, there's over 300 clubs in the country and many more one-nighters. The physical spaces for these clubs ran the gamut. It could be a bar or a hotel or a bowling alley. Or a lot of times it was a converted disco because you know what discos had? A liquor license. One club in L.A. called Igby's was a disco, then was a comedy club in the 80s and 90s, and eventually is now a strip club. Same room. The Improv and Catch a Rising Star from New York are starting to franchise branches that still exist. There's improvs all over the country still. And so you have that going on. Then you have individual like markets like the punchline circuit or the laugh stop circuit. And here's the most embarrassing part. What's that? Well, for some reason, these comedy clubs feel compelled to come up with the goofiest, most humiliating names and people have to actually get checks from clubs with this on it. Well, how else are you supposed to know comedy happens in? I don't know. These are real. I'm not making up one of these. Zanies, giggles, chuckles, bonkers, snickers, slapsticks. I'm not done. Uncle Funnies, Funny Bones, Coconuts, Hilarities, The Last Laugh. 
There's still more. The punchlines. Yuck, yucks. Uh, let me tell you a story. I once played a room in Miami called the Comedy Womb. And somebody was like, oh, is that the one in Illinois? I'm like, there's two Comedy Wombs. That's, that's where we were at at the time. Was there like a mechanism in place? Well, so? what happened was early on with the clubs, they would just send like four comedians from the comic strip or from Catch, and they'd all get the same money. But eventually they figured out, oh, the public does not need that. And that became the opener, usually opener slash MC, middle headliner. Act one, opener. The first stand-up to perform. Usually the opener has the shortest set time to tell jokes. Their job is to warm up the crowd and get them laughing. The MC had warmed the audience up, got them focused on the stage, they had a drink or two, they're kind of loose. Act two, middle or feature. This stand-up comedian performs between the opener and the headliner. They're usually an up-and-comer, someone you might have heard of if you're in the know. Sometimes this is seen as a development spot where an agent or booker might audition someone before they're ready to headline. It's a sweet spot. You go up, you kill. You have any, no pressure, no pressure to start the show, which is a little bit more difficult, and no pressure to close, which is sometimes bringing a big finish up. So it was a great spot to be in. And they were getting decent money. How much time did you have to do as a middle? As a middle, I would probably do 20. That's Margaret Cho. As an opener, I would probably do about 10, something. Right, right. And then the, the headliner, we usually do about 45 to an hour. Act three, headliner. This person is the last to perform. They're the name outside on the marquee and they're the name on the ticket. Did you have to deal with the check spot? They did have the check spot. The check spot didn't really go away. A check spot is about 10 minutes before you're about to wrap up. They bring the checks around <laughs> to, the, to the audience. So they're, they're, that's a hard thing because when you're ramping up to have the biggest jokes of the night, because you're, you're the headliner, you're about to close, they also bring how much this whole evening is going to cost the patron. They've got to get their credit card out or their money out, or they've got to get the money from the people on the table with them. It's a, it's a disruptive moment. I know we're kind of making fun of these clubs, and but there was an incredible benefit to this proliferation, and that was local comedy scenes in major cities all across the country were breeding a new generation of comedians that didn't have to start in New York or L.A. Not a lot of comedians don't come out of Boston. No, there's, uh, there's a lot of good ones there. This is Stephen Wright talking with Johnny Carson after his first appearance on The Tonight Show. What do you, where do you work in Boston? I work at uh, the Comedy Connection and Constant Comedy, which is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where uh, Peter LaSalle saw me, who that's right, got sorry. me here and... Uh, he saw me, he didn't say anything, but three weeks later the phone rang and he said, how'd you like to do the Tonight Show? And I said, uh, I think you have the wrong number. <laughs> Tonight Show producer Peter LaSalle's hunch about Stephen Wright was correct. This was the first of many successful appearances. Yeah, it's a small world, but I wouldn't want to paint it. One time I went to the drive-in in a cab. <laughs> Movie cost me $95. I went to court for a parking ticket. I pleaded insanity.
about four years ago, I... No, it was yesterday. <laughs> And it wasn't just Boston. She's a housewife from Denver, Colorado, who started appearing at a local nightclub called the Comedy Works in Denver about uh, three or four years ago. Would you welcome Roseanne Barr? You know, this bugs me the worst. It's when the husband thinks that the wife knows where everything is, huh? Like they think the uterus is a tracking device. <laughs> Cheetos left. Like he can't go over and lift up that sofa cushion himself. You know, it's like all those nerves, and uh, then I got a, a really big laugh, and it was just the greatest. It was the greatest thing I'd ever felt in my life. The greatest thing, from having children, even greater than any of that. My Nirvana moment was definitely the Tonight Show. So as we can see, Carson, this breaking comedians, Freddie Prinze in 73, Roseanne, all of this throughout his career. But that's not what I want to talk about. What do you want to talk about? Uh, Johnny Carson and I'm going to have to use the word his laziness. Wait, wait, how is he lazy? Let me tell you how he's lazy. In the mid-70s, they used to, he used to do five shows a week. And then on Saturday, they'd take a show and call it the best of Carson. Like a rerun or? A hundred percent. It was a rerun. But a good rerun. Excellent. The best. Johnny had an idea. It's like, why don't we move that rerun from Saturday night and put it on Monday night? That way I can take Monday off. I'll have a longer weekend. And work four nights a week. Yes. And MDC was like, we'll do that. That opened up the Saturday night spot. And guess what came in there? Um... I'm just going to guess Saturday Night Live. It's Saturday Night Live. Okay, that's what we talked about last week. Of course, of course. But there's more to this story. Okay. So then around 79.80, Carson wants to do an hour instead of 90 minutes. And that had been the length of the show. But he's like, look, I've done this show. I've been hosting longer than Jack Parr and Steve Allen put together. And NBC let him do that? Of course. He was uh, making them a lot of money and was basically their biggest star. So did they just like move the programming forward or what did they do with that extra time? Well, they had the Tomorrow Show and I think that was there for a little bit, but eventually they're like, let's do another talk show and call it. Oh, is this how the late show and the late night and all yes. the, the, the second late the night second. shows? The second. There's another. That's how this began. Right. So that's how we got David Letterman. And he, of course, brought in a way edgier and more irreverent take, not only on the talk show, but on the kind of comedians he could book. Folks, my next guest is making his network television debut tonight, and we believe it's long overdue. He is one of the strangest and most original comedians working today. Brace yourselves. I'm not kidding. Please welcome Sam Kinison. This is very interesting because a few months before Sam Kinison made his broadcast debut on David Letterman, he made his television debut on HBO's Young Comedian special, hosted by Rodney Dangerfield. So now, comedy fans could see both a uncensored and censored version of a comedian's act. And we should note, Sam Kinison first developed his act in the Houston, Texas comedy club scene. There's still time to call the church and call all this off. I know a lot of you come here, you watch TV, you wait every night 
for somebody to come on here and give you an answer for your lives, waiting for someone that'll come and say, hey, this is it. I don't have to settle for defeat anymore. I can rise up out of my routine. I can get a hold of myself. I don't have to lose. I can win. There's something inside me that's not going to let me go down anymore. But I'm not the guy. I was married for two years. My life was so boring, I actually worried about my yard. <laughs> the rest of my friends had goals, careers, visions. They were doing things with their lives. I was out there looking for crabgrass, weeds and stuff, going, I have a responsibility to the neighborhood. There is a weed here. <sighs> and then that doesn't happen you have kids. Have you seen those guys? Those guys in the malls with the strollers. Have you seen them? With that look on their face like they envy the dead. <laughs> Somebody shoot me! This isn't a ball, I'm in hell! Ah! Ah! Obviously, there are a lot of comedians now working, being broken, being discovered, traveling around. Mm -hmm. Getting paid a lot of money, a lot of times in cash, off the books. Yeah. And this has created an industry. Agents and comedy bookers and club owners and college bookers and managers and publicists. And then now there's a magazine. We even have like this yearly convention showcase up in montreal is that just for laughs the just for laughs festival has been going on since 83 it's massive it's not just for the industry but fans can go and check out comedy as well it's it's incredible and there was other festivals too there was the famous aspen comedy festival started on showtime went to hbo that's since gone away but Montreal has been there the whole time. Were there ever any like seminars for comedians Let's, at these or was it all performance? There was sometimes a little seminar, but it was mainly showcasing comedians. And then you would get network executives and network bookers that would go there and give comedians development deals. And I do a setup there. And then my agent comes in the next day and says, hey, we just got a development deal. Here's Rich Scheidner again talking about his first Just for Laughs. ABC wants to develop a sitcom for you and they're paying you you know $100,000 holding no way it's a holding you I go oh, I got $100,000 without doing anything money was sort of flying just sort of flying at you stand up comedians with their already packaged persona and television shows have always been a great fit going back to the earliest days of television and even radio before then but we had obviously Danny Thomas we talked about and Phil Silvers but then later Freddie Prinze and Jimmy Walker in the 70s, and then Robin Williams and Gabe Kaplan. Even Billy Crystal was on a sitcom in the 70s. But in the 80s, we Bill Cosby, of course, with the biggest of all the sitcoms of the decade, Saget and Coulier, Roseanne, Gary Shanling, and then at the end of the decade, Jerry Seinfeld. And then into the next decade, Brett Butler and Tim Allen. That's just a partial list. And while this is all going on, College campuses also are demanding comedians, and they have their own conventions. There was something called the NACA. National. Uh, National Association. Association of Campus Activities. Hey. Hey. Uh, it's Pete, right? Yes. 
Pete. Yeah. Wayne. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet nice you. To meet you. Just grab something. This is a scene from Crashing with Pete Holmes and Wayne. So, uh, are you going up tonight? Well, not here, obviously. But, um, I get up. You I'm do? Trying to get into the college market. Mm-hmm. I just submitted a tape to uh, NACA. I don't know. They still have NACA? They still have NACA. NACA changed my life. Changed my life. I booked like 80 colleges, paid off my student loan. But here's the crazy thing. More important to me was I wrote on my tax forms, comedian. Is that crazy? No. It was so important that's, to me. That's everything. That's I, all I wanted. That's I haven't had a real job since. That's what NACA did for me. And that was absolutely true. NACA did change my life. And the bookings and the bookings went from terrible, which was something called a nooner, where you would literally have to go into a cafeteria during lunchtime and just start doing comedy, basically interrupting college students. Luckily, I was able to graduate out of that and into nighttime shows. And this was just another example of just the huge demand at the time for young comedians. March 29th, 1986. Billy Crystal, Whoopi Goldberg, and Robin Williams co-hosted a special telethon benefiting homelessness. It was the comedy version of Live Aid. HBO unblocked and shared its feed, allowing millions of basic cable viewers to watch four hours of uncensored stand-ups, sketch actors, and sitcom stars live from the huge Universal Amphitheater. Won't you join us for a once-in-a-lifetime comedy event? As some of today's... And yesterday. And tomorrow's. Plenty of stars come together for an unforgettable night of laughter. Comic relief, live on HBO. So it wasn't just sitcoms and talk shows. Mm -hmm. Programmers were always looking for a way to get these comedians on television, and they tried a number of times. Was this happening, like, on local channels, too, not just the big... Yeah, yeah, there was a there's a show called uh, Comedy Tonight out of New York. There was a show in San Francisco they did. Uh, I think it was called Good Times Cafe, and... But there's, like, public access and PBS. Yeah, so there, and... Was, there was a demand for so it. How, so how come... I've, I've heard of The Tonight Show, but I've never heard of these other shows. Well, because some of them didn't stick and last long. There was a couple of shows in the 70s. One is called Make Me Laugh, and the other one is called Norm Crosby's Comedy Shop. And it's just Norm Crosby, who was a 50s-era comedian, maybe an Ed Sullivan-era comedian, okay. would host this show where we would introduce young comedians, and then they would do, like, five minutes on that show. It's The Comedy Shop, starring Norm Crosby. With guest stars, Elaine Boozler. You know the old saying that a woman's place is in the home. Well, in the case of Elaine Boozler, I happen to agree. Because as charming and witty and funny as she is, Elaine belongs in as many homes as possible. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Elaine Boozler. Don't this side force this side to clap, okay? I hate you, don't bother. It's oh, I hate cheap stockings. You can never get the crotch to come above your knee. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like talking to people I don't know. <laughs> well, you're okay, but... Uh... <laughs> no, like when you go to department stores, anything like that, they drive you crazy because they assign a sales lady to you. Why is it that when you go in the dressing room, the minute you're naked, she opens the door? Yeah! How can I help you? Yeah, what do you think of these? <laughs> what do they 
always talk to you in groups. What are we looking for? I'm looking for the other people you're talking to. Knock on the dressing room, how are we doing? Oh, I'm fine, but the boys would like some coffee. And then make me laugh was they would have somebody in the audience sit in a chair and a comedian would do their routine right in front of their face. And there was just a documentary that I worked on called The Zen Diaries of Gary Shanley. And one of Gary's earliest television appearances is on Make Me Laugh. So I'm trying to tell you, it wasn't really till well into this comedy boom that they finally cracked it on how to present these young comedians. And they used basically the Freddie Prinze and Friends model. Like just like a stand-up show with a, a, a well-known host and some up-and-coming comedians. Exactly. Exactly. And so, and so HBO had been doing these, these specials, right. and, and now other channels got involved. Right. Showtime did. And not only the hour specials, but started doing individual nights where they would have five comedians. Sometimes it would be a theme thing, like Women of the Night, okay. or something like, or Young Comedian Specials. But then between cable and the Fox Network, we had Comic Strip Live, Comedy on the Road, MTV Half Hour Comedy Hour. Showtime Comedy Club Network, Showtime Comedy Club All-Stars, Sunday Comics, Caroline's Comedy Hour, George Slaughter's Comedy Club. A&E's and Evening at the So basically the stand-up comedy infestation that has taken over the yeah. nation was now on television. In 1987, Eddie Murphy releases into theaters his second stand-up special entitled Raw, and it remains to this day the most financially successful stand-up film of all time. In 1989, Jerry Seinfeld launches his juggernaut NBC sitcom that, after a shaky start, becomes an all-time television classic. And this is the exact time when big money enters the comedy game. In November 1989, Time Warner, which owns HBO, launches a cable channel dedicated exclusively to comedy. Just four months later, on April Fool's Day, Viacom, which owns MTV, launches a cable channel dedicated exclusively to comedy. Where there was once no comedy channel, suddenly there were two and all the smart money was on the comedy boom continuing to grow. Little did they know that the American audience had something else in mind. And what happened next? Push the evolution of stand-up into its next incarnation. To this day, I tend to have a hard time on Friday and Saturday nights, especially second show Friday at a mainstream comedy club. That's Janine Garofalo. But I tend to only do venues that are not comedy clubs proper, whether it be a music venue or, or, or an art gap, whatever it is. That's next time on The History of Stand-Up. The History of Stand-Up is hosted, written, and produced by Wayne Fetterman and me, Andrew Steven. The show is also produced by Jeff Umbro and Chris Boniello of The Podglomerate. You can find more of their podcasts at thepodglomerate.com. 
Special thanks to Margaret Cho, Tignataro, and Rich Schneider, as well as the Abraham Comedy Archive and Jordan Brady and his film I Am Comic. Some of the music in the episode is by Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more about the show, episodes, and extras at thehistoryofstandup.com, at histofstandup on Twitter, or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend and leave a review. It really helps us out, and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.